Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. This is the passage that I closed with last week, was Luke 18, 10 through 14. Looking at what we're doing and, and the series that we're in, that we're going to move into talking about baptism here in the next couple of weeks, uh, we talked about repentance last week, and really this is just going to be part two of that, that sermon. I, I think that uh, it's so important to understand what repentance is and what it means to have a heart toward God. And we may, in the baptism series, kind of play it by ear. I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be rushed because baptism is such an important subject that next week I'm going to talk about justification by faith and what it means to be justified by faith. Um, and then after that we'll go into water baptism and then we'll go into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that may take a couple weeks each there. It just depends on how much ground we cover. But I, I don't want to be rushed through that because I want this to be uh, really foundational for everything that we do going forward is understanding what baptism is. Why are we baptized in water? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And what does the Bible say about these things? Uh, most important, what does the Bible say about these things? And there are some beautiful things about this uh, that are, that are life-changing. But this morning, finishing in part two on repentance, the <clears throat> story that Jesus is telling, and he, he's telling, one, Jesus teaches in parables. So Jesus teaches in very simple stories. He is the master storyteller. He's the master teacher. And he teaches in parables. So he uses things like the water and wind and farming, construction, all things that people would have understood. What Jesus does and what all great teachers do is they take really big ideas and they communicate them in ways that everybody can understand. There are people who take really big ideas, communicate them in ways that people cannot understand, and that does not make them a good teacher. Jesus is the example uh, to say that when you communicate, you should communicate clearly, that you should uh, be able to connect with what people are saying. And there were times that some of his parables, uh, he, was, he spoke in, in ideas, in, in metaphors that people would have understood, but they were hard sayings. I mean, when Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And of course, he's not being literal uh, about that. He's talking about, you know, you abiding in Christ. And the Bible says that many people walked away when he said that. Uh, so he, but he always used metaphors and examples that people would have understood. <clears throat> and in this case, he's using a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Everybody in that day knew what a Pharisee was. A Pharisee was a religious leader. Uh, Jesus calls them hypocrites many times. He says, you're, you're whitewashed sepulchers. You are beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. Uh, and you know, he, he's, he's going against them quite a bit, against the religious world. And then he talks about the tax collectors. And as I think I mentioned last week, the tax collector wasn't just somebody who, it wasn't the equivalent of today's IRS employee. A tax collector, they were known for being uh, extortioners. They would steal money from people. They would come to you and say, your tax is $500, but really maybe it's 400 and they're gonna take the extra 100 and pocket it. And this was their reputation. 
very low in society uh, on how they make <clears throat> their money. And then Jesus says, so you know, they both go to the temple and the Pharisee says, God, and he's praying out loud, I thank you that I'm not like this person here next to me, uh, the extortioners, the unjust, or even like this tax collector, the worst of the worst. I fast twice a week. Here's, here's what I do for you, God. I, I give tithes of all that I have. And then the tax collector standing afar off, you know, the imagery that he's, you know, he's not good enough to come to the front. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he would beat his chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God says, Jesus says, that this man went to his house justified more than the Pharisee. For everyone that exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so what, what does this have to do with repentance? Well, we can't be too proud to repent. Like we have to have that mindset. You know, it's just that prayer of God baptize us with humility. There is a, a passage in Luke 5 where the Pharisees look at Jesus and say, how could you eat with publicans and sinners and tax collectors? How could you eat with these people? You hang, these are the people that you hang out with. And how could you claim to be God's son and, and hang around with these people? And Jesus' statement, his, his answer to them was, those that need, those that are whole, those who are healthy don't need a physician. It's those who are sick that need a physician. And then he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. The purpose that Jesus came to the earth was to call sinners to repentance. The irony here that those people that he, he was talking to didn't pick up is they were the worst of the sinners. He, you're the ones that really need God. And he's saying, but I didn't come, I didn't come to call you the righteous. You, know, you almost pick up a hint of sarcasm like I didn't come to call you the Pharisees the righteous I actually came to call these people I'm hanging around because they're sinners they need God when in reality these people were in desperate need of God too but they couldn't see it because they were self-righteous and that self-righteousness is a stink in the nostrils of God uh, self-righteousness a lot of times churches people Christians uh, people look at Christians and think, well, they're self-righteous. And sometimes that's true. I mean, I have known some self-righteous people in my life. I've known some self-righteous preachers. Uh, so I, I certainly understand where that, that idea is coming from. But when I was a kid, I remember seeing preachers as just these super spiritual giants. Uh, that they're, you know, these guys just lived on a different level and a different plane. Uh, and... It, I realize now that that was, I was probably putting them, I was elevating them to a position and to a status uh, that they didn't deserve and the ones that I knew didn't ask for. Uh, they, they didn't see themselves as that. I knew some wonderful men of God, but to me they just walked on this, this, different, this different plane. Um, but there isn't anyone. There isn't any preacher. There isn't any veteran Christian. There isn't anybody who's new to faith. There's no one that is above needing to live a repentant lifestyle. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. We are living in a culture where people have hardened their hearts. I mean, that's not a new thing, but uh, people throughout history have done this throughout time, and, and people today, that they hardened their hearts and the, the headlines that we read sometimes scream of atrocities that are performed in our communities, and that is, comes from the hardness of the heart 
the spiritual heart. But there is a more subtle form of hardening our hearts that can happen to all of us uh, that just through life. Like life has a way of making us callous, that we enter into life full of optimism and um, life can then tend to kind of bring cynicism and unbelief. And, uh, you know, I, I, I know what it was like to be a, a much younger and to be f full of much more optimism. And, and time and life can kind of, kind of make you a little bit jaded, a little bit cynical. And you start looking at, you know, the people, young people that are much younger than myself or maybe they're just starting out in life and they're full of optimism. And I've got to be careful not to crush that because I say, no, that optimism is good. They'll get enough of that soul-crushing experience just through life itself. They don't need that to come from me. But life just has a way of hardening our hearts. And repentance, a heart of repentance of being broken before God, Really, only broken men and women can truly stand before God uh, in the right way, is that if we're broken before Him, because we don't come to Him on our own strength. In Ephesians 4, now the word repent doesn't occur here, but this is a beautiful display of the act and the fruit of how repentance reverses the hardness of the heart. I'm going to read you what Paul says. So Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So let's back up. Paul says they have hardness of heart. What happens because of the hardness of heart is that they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because they are ignorant, and that's due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. So here's a word that's similar to that hardness. It's just they're callous, and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you have learned Christ assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self. Now, look at the language here. He, what he's, the language that he's using here has to do with, with clothes. He's using an example of taking a garment off and putting a garment on. He says, you need to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And remember, he's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians here. Believers, Christians, put off your old self. Why? Because when we come to God, we come to Him, but everything isn't done for us. God just doesn't all of a sudden take away the desires of, of things that we shouldn't desire. Uh, it, it's a process. It's, it's an intentional process. There has to be an intentionality about saying, I'm going to take this and I'm going to take this garment off and I'm going to put Christ on. He's writing this to believers. I've had, I've had people tell me that when God has delivered them from vices, I've had people give me testimonies and say, God delivered me from this, and from the moment I went to the altar, I never had another desire to do that the rest of my life. And I've had other people tell me that I came to God and I gave those things up. But I remember one man, 10 years later after he came to faith, pastoring a church, told me, I still am tempted by some of those things. I don't do them. I don't go there. But if I said I wasn't tempted by them, if I didn't, say, I didn't see the appeal, I'd, I'd be lying. Uh, because 
it's, you know, it's just that intentionality. You know, hey, I, I wish God would be great if God could just, just do this for us, but some of this we have to walk through, we have to grow, and we have to do it for ourselves. God gives us the strength to do it. He gives us the power to do it, but He doesn't do it for us. So Paul says, put, your, put off your old self, verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Living for God requires intentionality. It requires us making conscious decisions that we're going to do some certain things. Uh, God didn't wake any of us up this morning and uh, make us gather here together. It was an intentional decision that we said, you know, this is something in my life that I should do, that I should honor God with my, my time on the Lord's day. I should honor Him. I should gather with His people. That was intentional. Then Paul goes on and says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul's writing to believers saying, don't be liars. I mean, that's exactly what he's saying. You're going to put away falsehood and let you speak truth to your neighbor. Paul's having to tell Christians you shouldn't be liars. So, that, you know, this is just another example of it doesn't happen automatically. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Uh, 2,000 years ago, the preachers having to tell people in the church, uh, don't be a thief, but go work for what you, what you have, doing honest work with your own hands. Uh, it's, I think it's indicating that there is no new problem. I think sometimes we look around society and go, man, things are... Uh, this is something my oldest son, Anthony, kind of reminds me of sometimes is uh, none of this stuff, you know, you, you kind of think that some of this stuff is maybe uh, different than it was when you were younger. He goes, but you have to remember, and he's right, that like there have been issues like this throughout all time. So the fruit of repentance is, when we come to God, the fruit of repentance is we live differently, we act differently, we talk differently, we treat others differently. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may get, give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, but let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And the verse that was my great-grandmother's favorite verse in the Bible, Ephesians 4.32, Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The last time I was in Illinois, a lady named Joanne Falkerson came up to me. We were talking and she was good friends with my great-grandmother. who She died when I was 15, but her and I were very close. Uh, and she said something about your Granny Rich's, Rich, her last name was Rich. She said, your Granny Rich's favorite verse in the Bible. And I was like, yeah, Ephesians 4.32. No, Psalm 90. <laughs> it's, oh it's like, oh, what, I thought, what a great conversation to be having. Actually, it's about Psalm 91, I think is what she said. Psalm 90 is like about how short life is and how you should number your days. That probably wasn't her favorite, <laughs> favorite chapter. Uh, two very different... Uh, verses, chapters. Uh, Psalm 91 is a very encouraging, positive chapter. And uh, 
she said, oh, that, that was her favorite chapter. I thought, what a great heritage she left that 30 years after she's been gone, we're having a conversation about which chapter was her favorite. Uh, you know, just uh, uh, that's the kind of legacy you want to live, leave to your family is, is what, was their, what was their favorite verse? Um, I, was, I was preaching somewhere at a church, another church one time, and I kind of got off my notes and I said something about, you know, my Granny Rich's favorite verse, Ephesians 4.32, and then I re realized I didn't know what it said. I forgot what the words and I don't remember how I got out of that. I think I just kept talking, but I knew there had to be somebody in the audience going, why didn't he tell us what it said? Why would he bring that up? It's like, because it wasn't in my notes and I, my mind went blank. It's your favorite verse. If you're really that interested, go look it up for yourself. That was on purpose. But isn't it amazing that Paul is saying, be kind one to another. He's telling me to tell Christians, be kind one to another, tenderhearted. You know, remember, he's looping back earlier in the, in the chapter, he's talking about the hardness of the heart. And Paul does this all the time. If, if you look, if you lay the, the, the writings of Paul out in a short passage like this, you'll be able to connect the dots and go, oh, up here he says this, and down here he's reversing it or he's connecting it. He's saying... You were the people, the Gentiles, which in this case he's talking about unconverted people, they have hard hearts. But you as Christians, you should have tender hearts. You should forgive one another. Uh, and so we talk about a lifestyle of repentance, and I have not mentioned this at all, but you know, we've been talking about asking God for forgiveness. But man, there's such an element there of forgiving one another. And we all have to do it. Like we're all going to trespass against somebody else, even inside a community of faith, and have to go up to them and say, you know, hey, I'm sorry about this. I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. I should have done it better. Um, I, I think it's wonderful that in my experience uh, in the church, and I think in life in general, most people, uh, it, the, the two words I'm sorry go a really long way. Like somebody who's willing to come and say, you know, hey, I messed up. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I'd like to do that. Would have done that differently. Uh, are we good? And I found most people, but especially the teaching in the church, Paul's saying, whatever people do outside the church, in the church, you should forgive one another. In verse 18, there's hardness of heart, and now we have tender hearts. We, we're kind, we're forgiving. That is the end result of all that Paul is teaching here. There is something inside of us that wants to be happy. And one of the greatest joys of living for God, of walking with Him, is happiness, true happiness. Happiness, joy that is not dependent on circumstances in life. It's not dependent on what's going on over here. I've watched people walk through really dark, deep valleys who had such a great walk with God, and they still had this uh, unexplainable joy in their heart because the joy came from God and it wasn't tied to their circumstances. Joy is not predicated on how our life is going. It doesn't come with new things. Uh, someone once said, money doesn't buy happiness, but it can buy the kind of misery I can live with. Uh, it's like, well, you know, I... Uh, it's... Uh, I said a while back, I think in a sermon, that, you know, we don't need more of this, we don't need more of that, we don't need more money. And I said, well, you know, we got to back up. We, maybe a little more money would, would be nice, but... Uh, it really, it, it can't do, it can't buy the things that you need. 
but that relationship with God will do it. The same man I, I told you about earlier, uh, Hargrove, he told me the story about a phone call he received from a man, from, from the wife of a man. She said, I need you to come over and uh, I, I need your help right now with my husband. <clears throat> he said he walked into the bedroom. He said, I didn't know it then. He said the cash that was all over the floor and just covering the room. He said, I would find out later there was $300,000 in cash laying around that bedroom. He said, the man told him, said, Reverend, he said, I can buy the best meals that money can afford, but I can't eat. He said, I can buy the best mattress that money can buy, but I can't sleep. He said, I can buy any car that I want to. He said, but I'm too scared to drive. And he said, he looked around and you know, just, just realized uh, that you know, it, it's not, it, it's not those things. Uh, I believe it was Ray Dalio who was, uh, manages the largest hedge fund in, in the United States who was a multi-billionaire and I read a uh, deal that he uh, wrote one time and he said, you know, he said, one, I never set out to be wealthy. He said, I never tried to be wealthy. He said, I was just in the right place at the right time. He said, but I will tell you, he said, there comes a point in life with the money that you have and he said, it's, he said, I passed that mark a long time ago. He said, the the mattress that I can buy to sleep on at night with my money is really no different than a mattress anybody else would buy. He said it, it doesn't it doesn't scale to uh, make me rest better. Or he said and, and he started and he he spoke Ray Dalio spoke a lot about this about how people should not strive to be wealthy. He said you know he said I, I'm, I'm nobody in this room and this was him talking should strive to to have the money I have. He said, because it just isn't going to make that much of a difference in your life. But what will make a difference is the joy that comes with being in right relationship with God Himself. Repentance is that pathway to joy. Sin submits and substitutes pleasure for joy. It's temporary and it is a poor substitution. And I will close this morning with this. If we try to fight sin with willpower, I'm not, I'm not going to sin. I'm going to do it. I'm going to mind over matter, willpower. You will lose the battle. Uh, New Year's resolutions teach us this. We have a poor track record of doing what's right by sheer will. Yes, you have to have a made-up mind. Uh, <clears throat> a made-up mind is essential, but you can't do it with mental gymnastics. It has to come from the empowering Spirit of God enabling you to do this. <clears throat> David, in Psalm 51, a prayer of repentance, the only time David mentions his sin is when he asks God to forgive him. But he never asks God for victory over the sin. He asks God to restore the joy of his salvation. Because when that joy fades, it creates a vacuum. When that joy fades, I seek worldly pleasures. When that joy fades, there I rush to find things to fill that void. Because there's this emptiness that when that joy's not there, I'm going to fill it with something. I'm going to fill it with a, a cheap substitute. But once you taste and see that the Lord is good, that the joy that is found in His presence, the peace that is found in His presence, once you experience that, there is nothing else that can suffice. <clears throat> 
I'll, I'll say, say to you this morning, you walk down a path of no return because once you have experienced what you've experienced even so far, there is nothing in life that will satisfy it. I've spent a lifetime watching people who have, who have walked away from God and their, their life is a train wreck all the time. Because and once they tasted that, there is no going back. People that don't know any better, they can function through life. But once you head down this path, and the good news is you don't have to go back. You'll make mistakes. You'll, make, you'll have failures and faults and things and slip-ups and all that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who just turn their back on God. Uh, it, it's, it's the worst thing that you can do because you know what the peace of God is. You know what, what it means to have God in your life working supernaturally. We talked about miracles earlier uh, before the sermon, but the greatest miracle is not the gift of healing because if God were to raise somebody from the dead, they're going to die again. Nobody has eternal life in this life. God uh, can, can heal people, and I thank God He does. If we're sick, if, if they're... But, that is temporary. You're, we're all going to die. I mean, it's just the reality of life. Nobody escapes this. Uh, so once you understand that, once you know that, to know that the greatest miracle is not physical healing, the greatest miracle is God declaring you righteous, giving you new birth. The Bible, and we're going to talk about this in the next couple of weeks, what does it mean to be born again? The new birth is one way of describing the same thing. The Bible calls it regeneration. It calls it new life. It calls it justification. It's all talking about the same thing. It's God coming in and making you a new creature, making you a new person in Him. That is the greatest miracle that God can give us, is that gift of salvation, is that gift of transformation that only comes from Him. So when we face temptation, we have to remember, and this has been what, this has been how I've counseled and tried to help people who are trying to overcome something is if you try to battle this sin at the, at the level of that sin by simply saying, I'm not going to do it anymore, you, you probably won't win that battle. But when you look at the joy that you have in God and then the sin that comes, that, that separates, that sin, it cuts off that joy. When you realize at that moment that if I do this, I am doing something that displeases God and it's going to affect that joy. Uh, it's like having a briefcase with a million dollars in it and someone comes up and says, I'll give you a quarter for that. Would you trade? You look at them like they're insane. It's like, well, I wouldn't, no, you'd have to give me more than this. Uh, well, that is exactly what's happening. God is offering infinite joy and infinite pleasure. I think, I think you read it a while back. You read C.S. Lewis's quote. You talked about it. Um, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for cheap substitutes when God has uh, a storehouse full of peace and joy that only come from His presence. The words from Jesus to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts 26. He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
There it is. That is what repentance is. Repentance is turning from darkness to light and from Satan to God. It is a reversal of the direction of your life toward God. And I'm thankful for what God's done in all of your life. I mean, I rejoice in that. I thank God for, I mean, it's, it's amazing to see the, the transformation and to see what God's doing uh, in, in all of your lives. I mean, that, that's just been an amazing thing to, to watch. And I'm grateful to just be able to have a part on that journey and to play a part in that. But ultimately, it, it is God. Uh, because I, I play a very minor role because now you know that anywhere uh, in the world that you lived uh, that you could connect to a body of believers and continue the faith walk uh, and that uh, you know, if, if, if something were to happen to me you know that God always God's redemptive purpose is never dependent on one individual but that God is going to have a people in this city. God is going to have a community of faith and a community of believers in this area that is going to proclaim the gospel and the message that we proclaimed. And I thank God uh, to be part of that. He didn't have to pick me. He didn't have to pick you to, to be part of that. But He does. He calls us. He chooses us. He calls us out of darkness into light and He's called us into repentance. And I thank God for that this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for once again your word that is established forever. Lord, we can't make it without your word. Your word changes us. It, it ministers to us, not just in this time we spend together this morning, but Lord, through the week as we walk through a very real world, that that word is inside of us and it is working on us. It is it is burrowing into our hearts and our minds and it is touching us in ways that we don't even understand. Lord, that your word is transformative. It's going to help us grow. Your, your word is going to seek out with your spirit. Your spirit is present to make it alive. The spirit of Christ that is within us, your spirit is going to, to do a work in us that is miraculous, that is transformative in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for that, that we are growing in faith. And in turn, we honor that this morning, Lord. We give you praise, glory, and honor. And we ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.